This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. A very good evening to all and uh, welcome to Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele. I'm deeply honored to be in your midst today. Uh, as always, um, you know, I welcome your thoughts. Um, this is your show. This is, this is not my show. Uh, we know that uh, from time to time, you know, this show seeks to anchor practices and principles um, of good corporate governance and and. and actually push the boundaries even a little further and see how these principles and practices uh, are being translated into action as opposed to having seen them on paper. Um, this is what, what we're all about. Um, and, uh, we all know that the good corporate governance orientation and practices have become a pillar of growth and sustainability in the country. We know for the fact that there's a positive correlation between, uh, between good corporate governance and the return on investment. Currencies. I mean, everybody, every major corporation in, in uh, and public sector as well. Um, they, there's been this reawakening of the value of corporate governance as a currency, which most people have to trade on. Uh, uh, and, and and there's no there's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, we have seen a number of um, you know corporate governance scandals uh, erupting every day, uh, and we we now we now have an opportunity as a country to reflect back and look at these issues. And, and call upon leaders who have stood the test of time and say to them, how have you done it? Uh, and what are the, some of the things that you've picked up um, from this kind of stuff? But anyway, that's a, you know, topic for another day. That's what's just a bit of an intro. Uh, as a norm, let me, uh, you know, congratulate uh, or thank, uh, you know, my predecessor, Simon. I believe Kathy is no longer, um, you know, doing the show in the afternoon with we miss it terribly. Uh, Tabo, you have a, you've got some explanation to do uh, because in only case, for in the, only for this week. Thanks for for bringing that to my attention. Of course, Sasha Star, uh, Mandy, and DJ Flo, whom I've never seen in a while. As always, I'm not flying solo. I've got Tabo Mlangen here, who who always keeps me on a straight and narrow. And tonight there's no exception. I expect the same thing. When we go and pay our bills, you know, Tabo will give me a nudge and say, let's go and pay our bills. Uh, as always, I implore you to download our, our podcast. And it's always interesting to hear what your thoughts are in terms of the value of the program. And uh, of course, our SMS line is 34519. And the email address is nimrod at And the Twitter handle is at chaifm. Um, I welcome your thought, like I said, um, you know, these kinds of comment, commentary uh, inputs are really uh, build the show um, to the level of standard or the expectation that you want to see. Tonight's uh, conversation is really about the role of business in shaping uh, uh, public policy, particularly in education. Um, I move from the premise that business in totality can no longer be on the periphery in shaping public policy, particularly in commerce as well as education, uh, because we know for the fact that the role of business is to create jobs, not government. Government's role is to provide an enabling environment through which you know, private sector, private individuals can take that advantage of that. And, and I'm happy to see the current narrative in the current administration have got that right. Uh, uh, in, in as far as what exactly the role of government is, the role of government is not to create jobs, but to facilitate an environment. On that, on the, on that, on, on that note, um, I'm pleased to announce that I've got a man that I have so much admiration for. I, I'm sure the whole world uh, will concur with me, uh, and who is more qualified than giving us a perspective 
on the role of business in relation to shaping public policy, particularly in education. Uh, on that note, let me take this opportunity to welcome Mr. Bonang Mahali. Nimrod Mbele. Litebele lam tim kulwa pugani la salati bazela in kalanka la sim lanjin. Nagita ubiza fela litebele. Thank you for having me. That gilebula hole. Gilebula hole. Gilebula hole. On that note, um, thanks for the book that you gave me last week. Lift as you rise. Uh, before you get to the issues around education, I, what prompted that topic? Because it's a very loaded topic, very loaded uh, and very uh, uh, inspiring topic. What, 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 what prompted that topic? But you see, lift as you rise mm. is about education. Because remember, education is both formal and informal. We will rue the day when we think that education is the one that you only receive in a classroom. Because in life, it's about learning from anything and everything and from everybody, those that are senior or younger from you. So when young people go to the mountain to learn about the rite of passage, how to engage, interact and interface with each other and one another, how to treat women in society, that is education. Mm-hmm. So that you are inducted in how you engage with life. So Lift As You Rise says the job of educating a society, a nation, a people with great natural endowment cannot just be the role of government. And it cannot only be formal. A lot of it ought to be informal. Hence, Lift As You Rise implores all of us to have a role, not waiting until we are President Cyril Madamela Ramaphosa the MD, the chairman, or the president of a company. It says you take two steps, maybe as a supervisor. You extend a hand and you lift as you rise because you want to create a cadre of supporters who share your vision. But you also want to pick them in such a way that they don't necessarily look like you because we force ourselves to grow when we include intentionally diversity in the people that work with us. Secondly, it says there's a role also for labor to play in lifting as you rise. That's why in the early 70s, during the mass exodus of black teachers in fighting and protesting against the virulence uh, of Bantu education, we coined a phrase in labor that says, each one teach each one. one. And because we understood that this can't just be the job of teachers. So those amongst us who understood mathematics, the onus was on us to then run evening tutorials. That's when we started with ABET colleges, adult basic education and training. But also it imbues governments to say the best amongst us lead with a heart of a servant. Therefore, this notion of servant leadership, you ought to be serving your constituency, the people that put you in office. It can't be self-centered about me, myself, I, because a leader, it's not the one that has many servants. Mm -hmm. Lastly, it says to us, as a people with great natural endowment, the duration of oppression is never determined by the oppressor. It is always determined by the oppressed. It's only when the oppressed say this much and no longer 
that they will liberate themselves mentally, and that is education. That's what prompted me to write a book to say, can we contribute to the body of knowledge in scaffolding the work of people that came before us? But also it helps us to be able to chronicle and archive as well as curate the work, the lives of black people as successful people, not just as an embodiment of that which is bad, bad and black and evil, where we live in a, an environment where anything that is unacceptable and is backward is called black. Anything that is progressive is white. Even the thugs in the townships struggle to kill a white person. Because the image that they hold in their head of Jesus is white. Therefore, in writing a book, it says, how can we start telling our own stories? That it cannot be that God, this mighty Jehovah that we pray, can create people and put, it, put them in the southernmost tip of the continent without any form of worship and religion. Because we are Christians, not by choice. Because I ask myself, not anybody else, what would have happened if South Africa was colonized by the Indians? We'd be Hindu. Mm. What if we were colonized by China? We'd be Buddhists. Therefore, we had no choice as to the predominant religion in South Africa. And we practice it much more fervently than the people who brought religion to Africa. I've never seen white people wear uniforms with such gusto as black people. They pray everywhere, under the trees on Saturdays and Sundays with absolutely no infrastructure. And yet we live in an environment where religion was used to castigate everything that is black as backward as an unacceptable. And we're told that our ways of living are barbaric. And that's why we really started with, but we can't blame anybody else. It has to be my job to say, in an environment where there's a fiscal crisis, can I write a story that is positive, that is building and creating, not tearing down and destroying? That shows black people as protagonists of their own lived experiences. That shows positive sides of black people that we are capable of liberating ourselves, that we can extend a hand and lift as we rise, rather than look at other nations to liberate us. Because empowerment starts first with the self. You know, when a free person is put in jail, they remain free. When a free person is deprived of education, of material means and wealth, and, and even sunshine, like they did to Mangaliso, Robert Sobukwe, he still remains liberated in his head because it's about what type of conversations you have with oneself. If you believe, genuinely believe, that you are useful, that you have a purpose, you have been brought to this world to serve a particular notion to bring about a solution to a particular pain, you will find a role for yourself. Therefore, in conclusion, I think for me, we need to always answer the question, what pain are we solving for? As a people with great natural endowment, God's own children in fulfilling God's work in helping others, because those that help others are fulfilling God's work. How inspiring that is, Dr. Bonang Mahale. For those who have just joined us, I'm joined in studio by the CEO of uh, a business leadership essay, Dr. Bonang Mahale. Uh, just before we close that conversation on the book, which, because for me, that will require a, a, a series of lecture. Um, because you've touched on a very important point by referring to 
you know, mental emancipation. Because you lived as you go along on the basis of your own, um, you know, um, conceptual framework in terms of am I free or am I not free? If, if I'm free, if I'm liberated, I'm more likely to liberate others. Um, I will not be happy to be seen as the only successful person. You know, um, we, there's this phrase uh, uh, that says PhD, pulling down syndrome. Uh, those that, that, that don't embrace the very notion of lifting others as they grow. Uh, because I think the biggest huddle, particularly among Africans, it is this uh, slavery of mentality of slavery that uh, Biko was assassinated for because we all believe that had it not been of of um, you know the assassination of Biko, the, the 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 conceptual model of Africans would have been different today because the battle starts in the mind than anywhere else. If the mind is not rescued, if the mind cannot appreciate um, the boundaries that has been confined. True by external forces, it, it becomes very difficult or impossible to liberate others. On that note, thank you very much, and and I'm sure millions and millions of people are going to buy the book. I will promote it as much as possible, for I believe the message is accurate, and most importantly, the message comes from person who have lived, which is different. Who has lived? We have seen it, and you are living embodiment of liberation and what it can actually do. The kind of public image and reputation that you enjoy today is not by fluke and which is very different you know from other people who suddenly have 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 a you know quite heavy pockets um and under very dodgy circumstances on that note thank you very much for enriching our lives with that very powerful message let me close on the book by saying lift as you rise is an african adage so when your listeners can Google what is called the Sobukwe clause. They will learn why the mental liberation is so critical. Because Mangali so Robert Sobukwe was feared by the apartheid regime much more than they feared Holisata Nelson Mandela. Because Holisata Nelson Mandela was allowed to mix with other prisoners. Mangali so Robert Sobukwe was given a four-roomed house to live on his own, never to mix with other prisoners because the apartheid government feared his ability to think, his conceptual capabilities, his ability to connect with other people. He was a priest but was not allowed to preach because they feared that he'll conscientize black people to believe in themselves. The Sobukwe clause says, when his time of incarceration ended, the apartheid government went to cabinet and they asked to extend it because that's how much they feared him. They extended it. When it expired, they extended it until they released him because they ran out of ideas, banished him to Kimberley where he ultimately died. Imagine spending all your life not having the comfort of talking to another human being. But up until the last moment, he remained potent so much that he's the only living prisoner that was never allowed to have a voice recording of himself. The only prisoner that was not allowed to be quoted, to be written about, and the first book about him was written by Benjamin Pogrand, a Jewish a journalist who became to befriend him. His son is Gideon Pogrand, who's the head of ethical leadership at Gibbs. 
Thank you very much, Ntate Mahali, on that very insightful, uh, 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 you know, understanding of exactly what inspired you in writing the book. And I'm sure the listeners out there are, are, are as marveled as I am. And, and I'm sure they, you know, they are running, uh, you know, a mock like headless chickens going, you know, to different uh, bookshops to get the book. I would personally implore that because I can relate with the message. And as much as most of us uh, can relate. On that note, let's move forward and really get back to the gist of tonight's conversation, um, which is around the role of, um, you know, the role of business in shaping public policy or discourse in public policy. Uh, you know, my point is actually uh, informed by the notion of corporate citizenship, that uh, business, um, as it were, has the social responsibility to not only meet legal, but most important, ethical uh, a consideration um, around not only for shareholders but for all this, the stakeholders. So the question for me, Dr. Mahal, is that how how this notion of uh, um, you know corporate citizenship anchored in the leadership uh, of businesses from all, from what you're sending because you you know you have all these business entities reporting to you or through the association, which ultimately sit on your table. So let's start with the definition of cooperative governance the separation of ownership from control and move quickly to say, but then what is the role of business? I think the role of business simplistically says to create goods and services that are needed for which you can name your price. Therefore, when you strip it of all the complexities and the jargon, business exists for two reasons. Number one, to deliver on what it says and promises. Number two, to do no harm. I mean, this is so critical. You can't harm the people that work for you. Therefore, their health, safety, security is paramount. Number two, it says you cannot harm the community in which you are located. Thirdly, it says you can harm the society that you are a part of. Lastly, you cannot harm the environment. If we took that seriously, we will have what I call conscientious, responsible capitalism. Because the context we are living in is what Michael Mandelbaum describes as the three ideas that have conquered the world in the 21st century. This notion of democracy, of capitalism and peace as a way of resolving conflict. Therefore, as business, we say, can business and human rights and the legitimacy of capitalism live side by side. Can we as business people say we really exist not only to create jobs, but we have a disproportionate voice. There's 58 million South Africans. There's 15 million that are gainfully employed. 13 and a half million of them are employed by business. Only 1.3 million by national government when you include provincial and local governments, 2.3 million. Therefore, you can see the role that business plays is disproportionate. Therefore, we need to be conscious, we need to be purposeful, we need to be deliberate about our actions. Because when business transforms, for instance, the whole of South Africa will be transformed. And yet, we talk in what context? We speak in a context where young people, 35 years and younger, there are more of them than you and I, are not employed. 5.9 million today, 6.2 million of them. And we know that the devil finds work for idle hands. 
10 million of young people are not in education, employment or training. What are they doing the whole day? No wonder our crime is spiraling. Lastly, we say, but what's wrong uh, with our education system in public policy context? First of all, we need to be honest to say in the recent study that was done in 2016 called the Pell study, Dave Chalmers penned it. He says 80% of grade four learners cannot read with comprehension. We cannot call that progress 24 years into democracy. We spend 50 billion rand per annum on TVET colleges. And yet the completion rate is less than 3%. This is a classical definition of irregular, fruitless and wasteful expenditure because there is no adequate return on investment. Lastly, what is wrong with our education is that we must accept that we are the only country in Africa that became free and inherited an educational system from colonial masters, and we did not improve that. Like Kwame Nkuruma did in 1957 with Ghana, 10 years into democracy, literacy rate went up to 80%. Even with the challenges that are besetting, seizing Gabriel Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, 12 million people, 5 million of them outside, a majority of them in South Africa and Botswana. He boasts today of 94% literacy. Lastly, I think we need to puncture the inflated fallacy that everybody can go to university when we have moved that number from 7% in apartheid to 11%. It's a speed in the bucket. The obsession with academic qualification is inappropriate, not only for South Africa, but Germany as the most developed country gets 80% of their learners to be artisans, motor mechanics, uh, millwrights, uh, electricians, because they earn more per hour than your cardiothoracic surgeon in Germany, but also in South Africa. Try calling a plumber on Sunday morning. Then you'll realize how much you pay that plumber per hour than you call your physician, than you pay your physician, for instance. So I think the streams that we need to be following say, for those that don't want to be PhDs and doctors and lecturers, let them go and be lift mechanics, apprenticeship programs. And they don't need grade 12 to be able to do that. Those that don't want to go to grade 12, maybe they want to teach our own children because they've got a passion for teaching. You don't need a PhD to be a good teacher. And yet we closed the nursing colleges, apprenticeship programs that were paid for by private companies. When after four years, you will then write a government uh, exam, you get your government ticket, and then you move directly to the blue-collar workers. The Leondales of this world and the Don Parks were, were built on a basis of entrepreneurship. On, were built on technical FTE on, quality. On blue-collar blue workers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now we've got these FTE colleges. I've never seen an ad in the Sunday Times. Half a million jobs advertised. That says, here the entry-level requirement is a TVET college mm -hmm. uh, qualification. Thank you very much, Ntate Mahale, on that note. We're going to take a break uh, and then come back after a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back to uh, Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod again. Um, before we went to the break, I, you know, I, for those that have just sort of joined us, I'm joined in studio by Ndade Bonang Mohale, who is the CEO of uh, uh, Business Leadership SA. I mean, um, when you mentioned Bonang, 
we all know who Bolang is. And, and uh, one thing amazing about him, as powerful as he is to you and I, he remains very humble. And, and for that, uh, uh, we applaud you, uh, because for had it not been your humility, had not been your 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 that kind of thinking that you have all the time, you'd not be where we are. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, it is now uh, um, you know eighteen minutes to seven, and once again, uh, you know we we're grappling with the role of education, uh, or the role which business ought to be playing in education space, and the best person. To give us that kind of insight uh, is, of course, Nadebonang Mohali because he sits, he heads the business. Business voice ultimately converges um, at his office. So the question is, because of this kind of, you know, challenges that 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 we are going through or we seeing as a country, in terms of what he referred to as an obsession to academia, uh, whereas there's a, there's sufficient evidence to, which points to the role and the value of FET colleges, uh, to me and pretty much South Africans, we, th- there seems to be a, a collapse of the social compact. There seems to be this harmony uh, between and among social partners. Nadimahal, how do we get that, um, you know, consensus up? How do we get to, how do we construct one way? We have NDP, you know, very useful document, very clear in terms of what, how the country can be turned around, and yet we are failing. And, and to me, and, and, you know, this is my own assessment, I could be wrong, the problem lies with all the, you know, entities that are supposed to lead that particular process. Can we lead the process without trade-offs? What's your take? So the way I think about it is the National Party government was singularly successful because it did few things well. First of all, the National Party government would never think of appointing a Minister of Finance without talking to the business community. That was a partnership. Apartheid lasted this long because it was emboldened by business, and they called themselves the Bruder Bond. They couldn't move without that. What is our own Bruder Bond today when our own government has gone out of its way Mm. to fracture business into a 1,001 little splinters for the purpose of state capture not to have a cohesive and coherent voice. We are busy fighting amongst ourselves. Labor looks at business and you are the enemy. Uh, teachers are saying, I will make you a principal if you pay me 25000 without caring about the future and the education of the black child. And yet the world is replete with examples of companies that have, and countries that have lifted themselves up by their own bootstraps. Malaysia expelled Singapore because it was so poor. They thought it would take them 300 years to fix what was broken with Singapore. Lee Kuan Yew said to his people, we've got nowhere to run but ourselves. In 40 years, Singapore became one of the top five biggest economies in the world with the highest per capita income in the world. Their model is simple. Uh, It's Tamasek where they run all the state-owned enterprises on a business line. South Africa is confused. It gives more than 700 state-owned enterprises a dual mandate. says you must be both developmental and be commercial. When you go as a black CEO, you drive transformation. After three years, you don't make money. They fire you and say, but you didn't make money. 
when you drive only money, the unions go to the ministers and say, fire the, fire the bugger, because he's not advancing transformation. We don't know whether we are Arthur or Martha or anything in between. So that's our problem. Lastly, when you look at Japan, Japan has one ministry of all uh, economic affairs. It's called MITI. In South Africa, we have four entities whose job it is to promote tourism. South African Tourism, Proudly SA, each one of them with its own board, with its own mandate, Brand SA. We are promoting the same thing. The ministries in the economic cluster, the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. The one would say, I'm promoting tourism because it's the greatest forex earner. When we have eight tourists, we create one permanent job. The other minister says, to come here, we want an original unabridged birth certificate. Tourism from China drops 40%. To Mauritius, it increases 40% of people from China. We displace them. Therefore, the history of 24 years of South Africa's democracy is characterized by own goals, by cutting our own nose to spite our own face, by incoherence, the one pulls hard to the left. The other one pulls hard to the right. The enemy is within. In the ANC, Matamela, Cyril Ramaphosa, cannot move. Not because he's fighting competition from China. Not because people are coming through the borders to eat our lunch. No, because he's worried about his own back from his own party. How can we move forward as a people with great natural endowment when we don't even have a compelling vision amongst ourselves? This ANC-led government needs to be liberated itself to say, how do we as a people do everything in our power to make sure that in 24 years we are no longer a teenager? We can say we took our people with this level of poverty look where we have taken them to. In fact, poverty has deepened. The people on social security have moved from 1.2 million to 17 million. A lot of it with bribery, stealing and cheating and corruption, but we are going backwards. Young people should be proud and say, we're guarding our own country with security guards, we're working with scientists, we are coding for which we don't need metric because we want to bring ourselves into industry 4.0 of artificial intelligence, of driverless cars, where cryptocurrency is going to be the currency of the future. What are we doing? We are still talking about re-industrialization. We are still selling raw commodities. We are not beneficiating. We are not localizing. Our own government, after it said, we have now won in defeating, rooting out a state capture. They go and renovate 19 flats in Cape Town at the cost of 3.6 million each. Even the paint is imported. Even the wooden deck is imported when the biggest forest in the world uh, is in Africa. We go and order the biggest locomotive tender in the world, 1064 locomotives, just through Transnet. I'm excluding the ones from Braza, where the height is inappropriate for South Africa, just for Transnet. We have two companies that knows how to make locomotives in this country. All the apartheid locomotives, Union Carriage in Blackburn. We don't even give them a single locomotive to make. We give it to China South Rail. And by so doing, we kill a company which was a subsidiary of Anglo-American called Score Metals. It is now one-tenth of its size. And yet we haven't even started building the first locomotive. And this tender was $30 billion. It's now $54 billion. 
Only now are we asking difficult questions about what happened to the 16 billion. Only now, nine years after the fact. We haven't even started on Braza yet. So I think as a people with great natural endowment and as business, we really want to take a lead on big things that will give us the most impact. Not a thousand and one little things. In education, it is our job. We must grow our own timber. In supporting land reform, business must take the lead, not just expropriation without compensation. In transformation, it must be business that says we are in Africa, not an outpost of Europe. Surely, all our leadership position must be broadly reflective of the demographics, including ownership. It's not sustainable that 1% owns 90% of the asset. It's not sustainable that 10% occupies more than 70% of positions of leadership. Thirdly, business must lead to say, how do we get ourselves into this mess of a fiscal crisis we are in? Today we are in a recession that we put ourselves in. Business must lead because it has the know-how. You know, project management is how you deliver mega projects on time, on budget, and in full. Business knows how to do that, not government. Business delivers beer to shebeans that are twice as many as the number of schools. Twice a week, government fails to deliver books in Limpopo once a year. Business must take a lead. Even if these books must be put in an AB InBev truck to go to Limpopo, we know that they'll be delivered twice a week. Lastly, I think business ought to be very clear about the agenda for growth. Because if we are not growing, we'll be talking about the redistribution of poverty, not the redistribution of wealth. And right in the heart of it, it's about job creation in large numbers. Labor absorbing jobs because we had 43 consecutive quarters of positive GDP growth. But we didn't grow as many as we wanted to. Yes, we added 500,000 families into the middle class. But a majority of black people's quality of life, discretionary purchasing power went backwards. And then lastly, if we are not serious about education, because education is the surest means of transcending social classes, we will be failing the generation that we refer to as the leadership of the here and now, not the future leaders. Because when one steadily bends the midnight oil, one gains access to the domain of knowledge and wisdom, the world of meaning, the world that cannot be conquered without a persistent crusade. As a parent, you say there are only two bequests I can give my children. One is roots so that they know who they are. The other one is wings to fly to anywhere else in the world. With education, you can peddle your wares everywhere else in the world. But if you are unlet not and unlettered, you'll always look for a job in the mines where it's difficult for you to get a blasting certificate at the time that mining is mechanizing because machines can't talk back. But here's the thing, which, which is quite critical uh, based on, on, on your assessment. There are clearly a lot of trade-offs. There are clearly a lot of competing priorities um, and, and of which we, we don't really get uh, that consensus. One would have imagined NDP would have been that common point of departure. Why are we not all the social partners cannot agree in terms of what is what 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 is applicable in the short, medium to long term in as far as NDP is concerned? Why don't you have the non-negotiables? Exactly. So we have many leaders even in the ANC-led government, but the death of leadership. Leadership says, what are the three, four things that if we do well, we take the bottom half into the middle class? So first and foremost, we need to be agreeing on the fact that we are the world's best producers of plants. RDP, 
gear, a skiza, 14-point plan, 9-point plan. The trick is not to have the best plan. The trick is not to have the perfect plan. The trick is to start a plan and implement it and fine-tune and tweak as you move along. You know South Africans will spend six years arguing about the NDP 2030 to say it doesn't adequately cater for the needs of the workers. Mm -hmm. No, that is not leftist enough. Why does that matter when people are poor? So just to get a leadership consensus that says that's the best plan we have, let's implement it because it was General George Patton who said great wars are won by good execution, not great plans because good execution can save even a mediocre plan. And then we take corrective action as we go along. At the moment, we've got too many people with vested interest, and all of them are thinking of me, myself, I. None of them are acting in the best interest of South Africa, Inc. Mandela brought all of us together to say, I'm going to trade justice for reconciliation so that I leave it to you, the young ones, to come and get on with the work of justice. The preamble to our constitution is very clear. It starts with we the people, not the politicians. It says united in our diversity. It implores all of us to accept and acknowledge the injustices of the past. But it doesn't stop there. It mandates us to correct them. It doesn't say leave them for your children. It says you and I must correct these past injustices. In South Africa today, we pay women 73% of what we pay men for work of equal value. It's not sustainable. There are more women than there are men. In South Africa today, what keeps us awake at night is these young people that are not gainfully employed because the elements that were present during the Arab Spring are present here and now and imminent. If not addressed, very soon, South Africa is going to go up in flames. Some would say it's already in flames because we've got service delivery protests at an average of three a day every day in the last 10 years. That's quite quite scary, if you ask me. And um, I mean, you're quite correct in that the the, the 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 you know the symptoms of Arab Springs are definitely imminent, and there's no hiding about it. Um, I mean, for those who who have been in in townships, um, you know, this is where you you begin to appreciate, um, you know, the 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 indifferent um, attitude and approaches of understanding exactly how South Africa, you know, and most of these um, incidents. Uh, of Arab Spring, you are, are mostly identifiable in black areas. Poverty still has a black face. Therefore, the role of business is how can we treat South Africa's children as our very own? Not as black kids, not as colored kids, not as Indian kids, but as our very own. Because when we start to do that, we will ensure that the conversations we are having with our children are devout of racism mm. because we are creating and building a generation of the future. Said is a father who talks racist language to his son because that's the vitriol mm. that he will spew when he goes to school. And that is not the South Africa of Khalilatla Nelson Mandela's dream. The, the South Africa of Khalilatla Nelson Mandela's dream is premised on nation building, on social cohesion on saying we are a people with great natural endowment, one national anthem, one national flag. All of us must be doing our damnest to share what we already have because the onus is on the dominant group to do much more because from those that much is given, much more is expected. Therefore, white people must play a role in the liberation of black people. 
men must liberate women because it's them who are uncomfortable about standing side by side with women. But here's a here's a here's a, a million dollar question, Doctor Mahal, is that for us? I mean, I'm obviously you know we've got business, we've got labor, we've got government. Um, you are the voice of business. Um, what would what would you perhaps maybe consider as the biggest trade-offs which business needs to bring on the table? And, and at what point um, are these trade-offs going to be known um, so that there's a sense of, of, of accountability? Because, you know, the narrative out there is that business is still hung on and we're not moving, we're not getting traction. Uh, we have jobless growth. You know, we see buildings going up and up. And, and when you look at the, you know, your, 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 your share index, there's not much of equity. What are the possible trade-offs which business can put forward and say, in the name of education, this is what we are going to do. And this is what we're going to forego for at least this particular period. What would that be? Three things and three things only. And in order of importance, growth number one, transformation number two, jobs number three. That's all. If you think about it, the reason why South Africa is called the rainbow nation, the reason why we are called miracle people, is because our forebears came to the negotiating table, not looking at what is it that they can take away, but they came prepared to give up something. That culture of selflessness, of other-centeredness, not self-centeredness, is what we need. The reason why South Africa has defied the odds when people thought that we were going to kill each other like the rest of the continent is because we had leadership, we had compelling vision, we had men and women of integrity. They were incorrigible, therefore incorruptible. The current crop of leadership they are thinking only about lining their own pockets. Otherwise, how do you explain VBS? How do you explain the demise of African Bank that was started, founded by Dr. Sem Mutsunyani, the longest bl- uh, uh, existing black organization called NAFCOC? Today, it's a shadow of itself. I think even that shadow is disappearing. Lastly, how do you explain the fact that 24 years into democracy, all the indices... Mm-hmm have gone backwards, especially around education. We spend 10 times more on education, and yet our outcomes in terms of numeracy and literacy are worse than Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, and Swaziland. We spend more on healthcare, and yet infant mortality, morbidity and mortality, adult mortality I'm talking about, has actually deteriorated. The only thing that has improved is life expectancy. And we are busy arguing amongst the social partners. Instead of saying, there are 10 things that need to be done. On six, we don't agree. But on these four, we agreed. That becomes our program of action for the next 10 years. Labor is looking after its own, not after South Africa. Business is looking after its own, not after South Africa. Government is looking after votes and constituencies, not about doing the right thing that is sustainable because resilience in Africa surely must be much, much more than food, energy, water nexus. We have more South Africans today that don't have any form of access to energy 742 million in Africa, 1.4 million in the world out of 7 billion, and yet the sun is free. The wind is free. Some of the mightiest rivers are found in Africa, including the mighty Zambezi. Enough 
to generate hydroelectric power to power the whole continent of 1.2 billion people, 54 countries that speak 2,000 languages. And yet the world authority on solar is Germany with three months of sun in the year. The people who produce the best chocolate in the world are Belgium and Switzerland. And yet all the cacao they need comes from um, Cote d'Ivoire. We produce the gold and just take it as it is. Uh, to India, it comes back as jewelry. We pay 10 times the price. And yet we know that data is confronting us that the price of raw materials and commodities is progressively and precipitously coming down. Beneficiated products are going up. For 20 years, this government has been talking beneficiation, beneficiation. In India, they don't talk beneficiation. They say, you open a jewelry shop, here are the incentives, we will buy it off you. And we'll make sure that we give you an export license. I think we need practical examples like that. We know that it's small, medium enterprises that create jobs in large numbers. And yet the Ministry of Small and Medium Enterprises is the one that's least resourced with the smallest budget. It's second only to the Ministry of Land. We say land is important to African people. And yet there's not even a single permanent land judge, but a temporary one. So you judge people by where they put their resources not just by what they say. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, if you have just joined us, I'm having a conversation which is uh, thoroughly interesting and illuminating. I would imagine most of you who are either in cars in the office, you are equally um, exhilarated by these kinds of, of, of thinking that is coming. But ultimately, Mahali, what um, you're putting short in as far as, um, you know, building or, or, you know, bridging the trust deficit between and among social partners because these occurrences are almost a manifestation of big trust gaps that exist. Somebody must obviously bring everybody together, the same way we've done with Codessa. Because it, 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 was, it was that kind of a fora where we, were, where we were brutally honest with each other and we were able to find. So how do we bring this, you know, how do we bridge the gap? You know, between and among the social partners to a point where we can all speak the same thing. We can agree what are the non-negotiables and we, don't, we agree on the non-negotiables and we execute those and, and we provide resources and incentives for, for non-negotiables. And we can, comp- we, we can, we can walk around or, or, or talk about issues, you know, of insignificance uh, and, are co- and, and actually, uh, you know, put little if non-resources on what we don't agree but pump resources or not, how do, we, how do we build that social contract? Thank God that the trust deficit that ex- existed in the last 10 years during the previous regime is gone. Today, Matamela Sarah Ramaphosa has managed to increase trust between government, business, labor, and civil society. And you see this manifest in him launching youth employment scheme at the Innovation Hub outside Deep Sloot. He then goes on to chair and bring about the four summits that he spoke about in the State of the Nation address. The job summit, five commitments were made. Investment summit, $294 billion committed. And the Africa Investment Forum, a, a resounding and indeed embarrassing success. So I'm happy to say that we now trust this administration, this ANC-led government, probably 10 times more than the previous regime because we judge them by their actions. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're not to leave there, Dr. Bonang. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you, and we have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I think we're now in a better space now that there is this resounding confidence in the new administration. We're more likely to address most of these issues collectively. Until
until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Have a good one.